Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote in the majority opinion on Kennedy versus Bremerton that, quote, the Constitution and the best of our traditions counsel mutual respect and tolerance, not censorship and suppression, for religious and non-religious views alike, close quote. The case was about whether there was a problem with a Washington state assistant football coach leading prayers, Christian prayers, lest you be confused, in the locker room before games and on the field. The Supreme Court that we have today, for reasons, determined that Kennedy was protected in his right to express his personal religious beliefs by dropping a knee on the 50-yard line of a public school playing field and calling on players to join him, and that that presented no harm to anyone or to the nominal separation of church and state. If it walks like a duck, and in this case it is, another Supreme Court ruling that bases itself in a reality that really just doesn't exist. This ruling in particular irritates meaningfully because, of course, we know that taking a knee is the sort of gesture that is either a fresh wind of free expression or a horrible affront to the values we hold dear, depending on who does it. So we'll hear today from Dave Zirin, sports editor at The Nation and author of many books, including most recently The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. And we'll get a little corrective background for corporate media's current conversation about the voices of athletes or performers who are mainly told to shut up and sing and their actual historical role in social change. We'll get that from journalist and author Howard Bryant. Counterspin talked with him back in June of 2018, and we're going to hear part of that conversation again today. That's coming up, but first, a quick look at some recent press. Of course, all eyes are on the Supreme Court's overturn of Roe v. Wade, a ruling that While it did not actually protect every person's right to abortion, much less their reproductive rights, still provided cover for doctors providing abortions. Nominally liberal news media do a fair job of relating public opinion, which does now and has for many years supported people's right to end pregnancies for any reason. But that doesn't mean corporate media play no role in the crisis before us. To paraphrase Ari Paul, writing for Fair.org, Neil Gorsuch was appointed after the Republican Senate blocked Barack Obama's nominee to replace Antonin Scalia until after the election in hopes of retaining a 5-4 to four conservative balance. Brett Kavanaugh replaced Anthony Kennedy, who stepped down specifically so his seat could continue to be held by a Republican appointee. And the last appointee, Amy Coney Barrett, replaced Ruth Bader Ginsburg, solidifying a 6-3 to three conservative advantage a week before the 2020 presidential election. Barrett's confirmation also exposed the cynicism of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who had blocked Obama's pick for Scalia's seat on the grounds that it was an election year, 
but then pushed through Barrett's confirmation. All three of these were nominated by a president who did not win the popular vote. Okay, on beer lover Brett Kavanaugh, the New York Times ran two op-eds to make the point that justices often do not perform the way partisans on the news media expect them to. They also ran columnist Brett Stevens' argument that liberals always cry wolf about threats to reproductive rights. The Washington Post seemed to make getting Neil Gorsuch confirmed a crusade. In the first 48 hours after Gorsuch was nominated by Donald Trump, the Post published 30 articles, op-eds, blog posts, and editorials, not one of which was critical or in opposition. Evidently, columns like, ignore the attacks on Neil Gorsuch, he's an intellectual giant and a good man, required no sort of balance. And then on Barrett, the Post ran a piece telling readers that liberals have nothing to fear from her because her religion leads to her commitment to treating others with respect. In all three of Trump's nominees, Nominally liberal-leading major media outlets told readers that the fears that these justices would undo Warren Court decisions upholding civil rights were overblown. All of which is only to say maybe those same media outlets aren't the place to look for answers about what to do now that that didn't work out. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. While we still reel from the theft of bodily autonomy from half the population, the right-wing-dominated Supreme Court has delivered other blows to principles that many believed were assured. In Kennedy versus Bremerton, a 6-3 to three ruling determined that Washington State High School assistant football coach Joseph Kennedy had a right to pray in the locker room and on the field. And why should a person be denied their right to what the court described as a short, personal, private exercise of their religious beliefs? As our guest and others want us to understand, the court's ruling relies on a storyline that just doesn't match the reality and is much less about freedom than about coercion. Dave Zirin is the sports editor at The Nation and host of the Edge of Sports podcast. He's also author of numerous books about sports and their intersection with history, politics, and social justice, including What's My Name, Fool, Sports and Resistance in the United States, and most recently, The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World, which is out now from New Press. He joins us now by phone from Tacoma Park. Welcome back to Counterspin, Dave Zirin. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I can feel the heat coming off your piece on this. And and I think it's because of the boldly false premise of this ruling um, about the role of coach prayer generally, but in particular about Kennedy. You say that this ruling is wrong from the opening statement. So maybe let's start there. 
Well, here's the issue. It's a cliche, but it's true. You know, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. And in the decision that was written by Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch, he relied on his own facts. Let's put it more simply. He lied in describing what took place in the Bremerton versus Washington, I believe it's called, the case. And here's the thing. Coach Kennedy was not off, as Gorsuch writes, praying on his own. He was not off quietly doing this, and he was not fired for doing it. So they painted a narrative of this coach looking for a quiet corner to pray, and then this school board with pitchforks and torches in hand forcing Kennedy out of his job. None of this happened. I mean, what Kennedy did in praying in the locker room, and then particularly his prayers after the game on the field, was draw in players to surround him in prayer, asking players to do testimonials about God. All of this thing creates like this kind of maelstrom of pressure on the players that if you are down with your coach, you will pray with your coach. And if you're not down with that, then, hey, you're free not to pray with the coach. But anybody who's ever played high school sports knows that if you don't do what the coach says, particularly in an autocratic sport like football, you're going to pay a price for that. You're going to pay a price for it, whether it's in terms of playing time or maybe even worse for the high school level, you're going to pay a price for it in terms of being outcast, in terms of being seen as a locker room distraction or even worse in the parlance of sports, a locker room cancer. And that is what the Supreme Court basically said could now take place, is a process of bullying in high school sports to make players feel coerced into praying with their coach. And that's unconscionable. It's absolutely unconscionable. And I've gotten a lot of feedback from folks, including tons of stories about what it was like to play high school sports at private or religious institutions and the degree of religious peer pressure that would take place and how it would alienate, ostracize, and all the rest of it. And I should probably add that you know, we, we would be completely, completely naive if we didn't just see this as an issue of prayer, but this is about Christian prayer. Like right. if the coach right. was Jewish, if he was Muslim, Hindu, whatever you want, religion, Shinto, right. um, or wanted to do a prayer of atheism you know, beforehand, there would be a very different response from this court than Christianity, because this court has shown itself to be proudly in a relationship with a kind of Christo-fascism, which is quickly overcoming the ruling structures of the United States, if not the people themselves. Well, and just to underscore the idea of the false narrative, you know, Danny Westneed in the Seattle Times, very close to the issue, wrote a story in which he was saying, as you have said, that Kennedy explained himself. He said he was inspired to start these midfield prayers after he saw an evangelical Christian movie called Facing the Giants, you know, in which a losing team finds God, Christian God, and then goes on to win the state championship. So the very idea that he was trying to find a personal private space to pray in private and that he was being denied that, it's just, it's just wholly not true. And can I say something else? The school district, and I say this as somebody who made phone calls, spoke to people, and I'm not just saying this for the purposes of my own narrative. They made every 
effort to try to accommodate Coach Kennedy. They made every effort to create spaces for him to pray. And they did not fire him when he repeatedly and repeatedly ignored what they had to say, thumbed his nose what they had to say. Look, my wife is a teacher, and if she thumbed her nose at the rules of the district to the degree that Coach Kennedy was doing, she would have found herself out of work. Now, Coach Kennedy, again and again, thumbing his nose at what they're saying to him. And in the end, you know what they did? They didn't fire him. They suspended him with pay, with the opportunity to reapply back for his job. And partly because I think they realized how hot button this was. They made every effort to try to look like, like, like partners in trying to figure this out. And, you know, they wanted to look like we want to collaborate with you to find a solution that, that actually helps and, you know, makes everybody feel validated. And I think what they learned, which I think a lot of us need to learn, is that there is a political movement in this country that's playing for keeps. You know, they don't care how nice you're going to be about it. They don't care if you're willing to meet them halfway. I mean, they're not trying for a bigger piece of the pie. They're trying to take over the bakery right now. And I think the sooner we realize that, the better, because a lot of people in the ruling corridors of the Democratic Party really seem to have not gotten the memo. Well, it's important that it integrates with sports and with athletics here, which I think makes it slot into a different place in some people's brains. This ruling, it uh, it galls, of course, for many reasons, but part of it is the ability for people who have a public platform to express political or social concerns, whether they're athletes or musicians or artists, it's framed so differently depending on who they are and what they're saying. Exactly. It's related, but if I can just transition you, you've written about Muhammad Ali, about Colin Kaepernick. Mm -hmm. It's always been true that there's been a kind of policing of what people can say if it's decided that they're outside of their purview. Yeah, you know, if I could say something about that. I, I wrote this book, The Kaepernick Effect. I interviewed dozens of young people, who, a lot of them in high school, who took a knee. And they were invariably subject to all kinds of ostracization, pushed away, I mean, pushed off the team, made to feel outcast from the team, oftentimes at the behest of the coach. And I think one of the things that we need to come to grips with is that this kind of aggressive Supreme Court-led Christian posturing is political. Because people say, well, that's just religious what the coach is doing. Taking a knee during the anthem, that's a political act, and politics have no place in sports. Do you honestly think it's not political that this coach is defying the school district time and again, is drawing in students into the prayer circle time and again, is thumbing his nose at at the concerns of parents time and again? And now, and if I wish I could bet money on this, is going to be on the right-wing gravy train probably for the next decade doing speeches time and again. And maybe they'll even be a, one of those Hollywood movies that only a small segment of the population sees starring, I don't know, Gina Carano and Kevin Sorbo, whatever, you know, the, the actors who occupy that space. And I think we need to realize that these onward Christian soldiers, like that's not just a song to them. This is a movement that they're trying to build and trying to collaborate and figure out common solutions, I think, is going to be a very, very difficult task because their eye is not on reconciliation. Right. 
Right. Um, thank you for that. And I'm going to let you go. But while I have you, I can't resist. Um, today's New York Times, quote, more than four months after she was first detained, the WNBA star Brittany Griner is expected to appear in a Russian courtroom on Friday for the start of a trial on drug charges that legal experts said was all but certain to end in a conviction, despite the clamor in the United States for her release, close quote. I, I, I know I'm asking a lot in a short amount of time, but I know that for a lot of listeners who follow media closely, they're going to say, wait, there was a clamor in the United States for Brittany Griner's release? Wait, who's Brittany Griner? You know, um, thoughts, thoughts on that. We, we need a much bigger clamor, is my first thought. I mean, Brittany Griner is a WNBA superstar. If her name was Tom Brady uh, the, or Steph Curry, I mean, there would be a national day of action to try to get them freed from a Russian prison. I mean, Brittany Griner is a political prisoner. Make no mistake about it. In Russia. Uh, not, in, Russia. in Russia. We care about Russia, right? To, you know. Yeah. Facing 10 years behind bars, five years at labor behind bars. I mean, this has nothing to do with drugs. I, I, I have serious doubts in the charges in the first place. This is about Ukraine. This is about political posturing. This is about this new Cold War that we're dealing with, with Putin. And this is about them trying to extract political prisoners out of the United States who are Russian in an exchange. And I think we need to apply pressure to our own State Department that bringing Brittany Griner home should be an immediate priority. What's disturbing is the concern that Brittany Griner, because she's a woman athlete, because she's from the LGBTQ community, because she presents in a certain way, that she's just not getting the coverage or the attention that she otherwise would get. And I think that's one of the things also we need to fight against. It's not just about injustice in Russia. It's about standing up to injustice and prejudice here at home. We've been speaking with Dave Zirin. He's sports editor at The Nation, and you can follow his work at edgeofsports.com. Dave Zirin, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Football assistant coach Joseph Kennedy fought his desire to take a knee all the way to the Supreme Court. For listeners who might not remember, when then-San Francisco 49er Colin Kaepernick sought to join thousands of others in expressing his outrage and sorrow at the killing of black people by police, he spoke with, among others, Nate Boyer another football player for the Seattle Seahawks who had been a Green Beret. And Boyer suggested that rather than sit out the national anthem, Kaepernick should take a knee the way he said soldiers take a knee in front of a fallen soldier's grave as a way to express dissent without disrespect. We've seen critics, including in the press, tellingly describe Kaepernick's gesture as an insolent refusal to stand rather than an action consciously chosen. Much as many people still believe Rosa Parks refused to move to the back of the bus because her feet were tired. Counterspin talked about the long history of athletes' activism in 2018 with sports reporter Howard Bryant, author of the book The Heritage, 
Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism, which is out from Beacon Press. I asked Howard Bryant about disrupting the narrative of black athletes as evidence of racial equity in the United States. I think one of the things that's been really interesting in trying to figure out how to tell this type of story, because there's so much to it, is where do you start and how do you put this together? And for me, the genesis of this had been this revival of this heritage. If you're of a certain age, you remember Muhammad Ali and you remember the memories, of course, of Jackie Robinson and you remember Bill Russell and all of these athletes, John Carlos, Tommy Smith and the 68 Olympics. You remember these players being very prominent and you remember them being advocates for African-Americans. If you're of a different generation, if you were, say, born in the 80s or even, even the 90s, this revival, the appearance of athletes taking a political stance, being involved in their community, being involved in social issues on a national level, is completely foreign because you grew up with the Michael Jordans and Tiger Woods being the model. So for me, what I thought was really sort of interesting and important was to remind people that the black athlete has been involved in the political struggle from the beginning and that these players have had a very special place in American history. The argument that I make in the the book is that the black athlete is the most important and most influential and most visible black employee in the 20th century because they're the ones who were allowed to integrate the society, whether it was the military, whether it was education, whether it was swimming pools. It was the ball players who came first. And because of that, they've had a responsibility to stand up and to advocate. So we recognize them when they're not there, and we remember them when they are. And with that comes this bind, you know, this visibility uh, as a real representation of integration, and yet still being a black American. And in terms of the history and the beginning, I think a lot of folks would be very, very surprised to hear that it starts with Paul Robeson. Absolutely. It starts with Paul Robeson. And of course, people don't realize that he played in the National Football League. He played football before he was the great baritone, before he was the great singer and the great the great actor and the great activist. And, and one of the only reasons that he left professional football was because the National Football League was integrated and then it chose segregation until 1946. So when he played 1921 and 1922, football was integrated. And then by 1923, no blacks were allowed to play in the NFL for another quarter century. It wasn't just Robeson to me that I gravitated toward when tracing this this heritage. It was also the fact that the African-American athletes' political roots did not start with black issues. It started with Jewish issues. It started with World War II. It started with American athletes being asked to defend America against Nazism and, and Jewish athletes asking for solidarity against the Berlin Olympics in 1936. And also, of course, asking Jackie Robinson to denounce Paul Robeson in 1949 in support of, of America during the Cold War. So it wasn't until much later, it wasn't until you had Robinson in that testimony receive all the attention for his denouncing of Paul Robeson, but also inside of that testimony, he talked about inequality and police brutality and and mistreatment of African Americans and fairness and all of these things that would become the foundations of this heritage. It started with Robinson, but not along racial lines to begin with. 
and started with Defending America. I find Robinson's HUAC testimony to be maybe the most moving part of the book and such a clear, um, first of all, a thing that's so misremembered. Completely. You know. Um, we chose to emphasize the part that made America feel good, right. which was, see, Jackie Robinson is a real American because he denounced Paul Robeson, the bad Negro communist. I don't even think we misremembered everything. We just chose to ignore it. And when I started to read that testimony when I was doing the research, I was wondering, did I know this? I think I kind of knew this, but maybe I really didn't either. Right. And, and that's what we do. We decide to omit. One of the great favorite colleagues and the, the great writer, David Marinus, once said to me that history writes people out of the story, and it's our job to write them back in. And I think that Robinson testimony is something that needed to be written back in. Absolutely. Well, you know, history's moving along, and owners and teams are aware that integration is happening, but... I, I like how you note that this idea that became popular and still holds sway that, oh, they're only looking for the best players, that that was fiction uh, always. And there's this note that Earl Wilson, when Earl Wilson was signed to the Boston Red Sox, the scouting report described him as a, quote, well-mannered colored boy, not too black, pleasant to talk to, close quote. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so you have you have this story of integration, but then... Black athletes are making money, and some of them are making a tremendous amount of money. And so that gives them a bigger megaphone and at the same time more calls not to use it. For caution, absolutely. And I think that's this tension that the black athlete has that even other black entertainers don't have. Why are we now talking about Oprah Winfrey as a potential presidential candidate? Because she has money. And we talk about Mark Cuban as a presidential candidate or Donald Trump as president or Michael Bloomberg as the mayor of, was a mayor of New York because they were all rich. When it comes to the black athlete, though, what we want from them in exchange for the money is silence. We don't want to hear from them. We want them to be quiet. We want them to shut up and play or shut up and dribble. And this is the one area where money is not affording you a bigger voice. And that goes back to this very interesting relationship that we tend to have with our sports figures that there's an ownership to them, that they don't necessarily get to be citizens, that their job is to entertain us. And I think that's one of the areas where this heritage has become so polarizing in a lot of ways, is this feeling of ownership is now colliding with the fact that you have this new generation of black athletes, post-Trayvon Martin, post-Ferguson, post-Eric Garner and Sandra Bland, who are now citizens, especially thanks to the prevalence of social media. They're watching these viral videos just like the rest of us are on YouTube, and they're looking at this dash cam footage. And one of the things that one of the players, Taven Austin, had said, who played for the St. Louis Rams when he came out in 2014 with the hands-up, don't-shoot gesture before a game, was, it's hard for me to go back to my community knowing that this is going on, knowing that I've got a platform, and all my friends and family are looking at me going... People listen to you and you're not saying anything. That's the heritage. That was journalist and author Howard Bryant speaking with Counterspin in 2018. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. 